The statistics on obesity are staggering. Over the past 20 years, obesity levels have doubled in the U.S. And to New York City, obesity is epidemic. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Glad you're with us. About 58% of adult New Yorkers are overweight or obese, and nearly half of all city elementary school children are in the same situation. Many serious health problems come from being overweight and obese, even during childhood. Things like early-onset diabetes, heart disease, asthma, and depression. Coming up later, what the city's doing to combat this growing problem. But first, we take a look at one person's fight to get healthy, a fight that's been going on for decades, and she's no different from many others battling weight issues. Skylar Srivastava has the story. For Rosemary Byrne, the battle to lose weight has been going on for more than 50 years. With a psoriatic arthritic condition preventing her from getting regular exercise, consuming larger-than-average portion sizes, and her addiction to butter, she's always been bigger than most. I was probably eight or nine and realized that I was bigger than the other kids, that I wore bigger clothes than the other kids. That's when I really began to realize that I had a weight problem. And that's continued for you all through your life? For my entire life. And each decade, overweight became more overweight. Rosemary was raised by a single mother. She says her mother worked, and often the kids would be left to fend for themselves, and that food became a substitute in many ways. It was a meat and potatoes family. So cake or donuts or something out of the ordinary was a treat. And I think that food was love that if you had some reason to celebrate, you ate. Food was a cause for celebration. In her words, the celebration took place on a daily basis and then at each meal. At some point, it just becomes a habit. You just eat too much because it's there. You do it mindlessly. If I sit at a table and there's food on the table, it will be gone before I know that I've eaten it. There's no thermostat that says, you're not hungry anymore, stop eating. And although habit played a major role, so did emotions. It's psychological eating, because there's a lot of it. You know, I'm bored, I'm angry, I'm lonely, I'm tired. Food is my constant companion, and I can shove into my mouth a lot of stuff which helps me not to have to deal with emotional issues. You know, food was the pacifier. As the youngest of three girls in her family... She remembers being the chubby one. She says her middle sister, Teresa, was the thinnest and never had a problem with weight or rich desserts. Teresa agrees, but says there's a lot more to it. I was the thinnest one, and I have always been more active and maybe more self-disciplined. So when she was having weight issues, and as she did through the years, I could have dinner and have it be dinner, and Rose was much more interested. Um, I felt that she always had more of a taste for sweets. The weight issue is a sore point between the two sisters. It's very frustrating to have someone who doesn't understand what it's like to be overweight or why it is impossible or seems impossible to stop. I found it very difficult to understand why, if you were focused on losing weight and you went on a diet, well, then you just sacrificed whatever you thought tasted good. And she was not able to do that. I mean, she went on a number of diets and sometimes was quite successful and then always reverted back to overeating. 
Rosemary has been on numerous weight loss programs, but the first major attempt was Optifast, a liquid meal substitute, shortly after her divorce when she was in law school in her late 20s. I was on it for about seven months, had no food except five protein shakes a day, and lost about 100 pounds. You have to make decisions every day about what to eat and how much to eat. You don't learn to do that by not eating at all. But as soon as she returned to solid food, the 100 pounds came right back. So Rosemary went through a course of fad diets, each time getting a little bigger. She graduated law school, became a high-powered attorney, got married, and then divorced. But the number on the scale only went up. And along with the weight gain, she says, there are so many things that she had to consider things that the average person doesn't even give a thought to. It's always, am I going to find a dress that's going to fit me? Am I going to have to walk the five blocks? Am I going to be able to maintain my balance if it's a slippery day out? In that body, I always wondered whether the seatbelt on a plane would fit. One of the worst experiences was being on a business trip with a client and having to ask for the seatbelt extender. In my head, it diminished me professionally. Slowly, there were more and more restrictions on her life. And at five foot five, she says her heaviest moment was four years ago when she weighed in at 262 pounds. There is such shame involved in being overweight that you hope others don't realize it as much. Um, I do remember as a lawyer, a partner at my law firm telling me I would probably never make partner because I was overweight and I didn't fit the pattern. Um, And then I got to the point where I had sciatic pain and was walking with a cane and thought, is this how life is going to be? She said she considered weight loss surgery, but said one aspect of it just didn't make any sense. Once you do it, you have to eat smaller portions. If I could learn to eat smaller portions, I wouldn't need to have surgery. And so I looked around for another alternative when I found the program at St. Luke's. The Obesity Research Center weight loss program at Manhattan St. Luke's Hospital has been known for its success in helping people like Rosemary, who've struggled with her weight for years. Rosemary says the one-year program had three experts that did make sense to her, an exercise physiologist, a nutritionist, and a psychologist. I know how to go on a diet. I need something more than that. So I went to a preliminary interview to find out a little bit more about the program. So, okay, so what we're going to do tonight is um, answer your questions, and hopefully you'll leave with a good idea of what's going on. So how many people have um, been in weight loss programs before? My name is Rhonda, and a friend of mine dragged me to orientation. I did not want to come, and she dragged me because she didn't want to come on her own. I'm here because my doctor sent me here. He wanted me to lose some weight, and I've been having a hard time losing it, so he told me to try this program. I've been trying to get it for quite a while. I've done Weight Watchers. I've done, I did liquid diet years ago, and I actually did lose with that, and then I gained it back. My name is Jill. I'm here because I have been trying to lose weight. I go up and down. I put on... 75 pounds when I was pregnant with my first son, put on 65 pounds when I was pregnant with my second son. He's 23 years old. I can't blame it on that anymore. Rosemary says it was in the weight loss program at St. Luke's Hospital that she felt for the first time she was with like-minded people. It's good to be in a group where people understand when you say, I think about food constantly, or I just don't understand why I can't beat this demon There is the commonality of addiction. 
and being in a room with other addicts, only it's food. And food and lack of activity are both addictions. Program director and resident exercise physiologist Rich Weil says the once-a-week $50 sessions are geared to teach students behavior change through lifestyle choices, and it's always baby steps. Many of the people who come to our program, they've tried everything. They've done everything. They've lost and gained hundreds of pounds, thousands of pounds maybe, and they're tired of it. You know, it's not a quick fix here. This is a sort of last resort, if you will, for many of them. Um, I mean, we're really giving them the support and the structure that they need. The classes at St. Luke's are somewhat like going back to school, but this time... It's for weight loss. We're also teaching people how to incorporate the skills that uh, will help them keep it off long term. You know, there's a lot of group support. You're with the same people for 52 weeks. Our objective is to keep the group together and encourage a lot of group participation. And when we have that, we get the most weight loss. So that social support is just a critical element of it. Rosemary says she felt the light bulb go on several times that first year as she learned new skills and coping mechanisms. She re-educated herself about food, about weight, and control. When asked to cut out one small behavior, this was her first step. It became, in the beginning, focus on what you're eating and see where you can take away. And for me, that was ranch dressing. I would use ranch dressing like other people, I don't know, drink water. And I lost a pound and a half a week. Because of Rosemary's psoriatic arthritis, she's never been able to do much physical activity. But she has been going to Pilates for many years. Her instructor, Jeannie Lee, also provides some therapeutic treatment. All right, so you're going to inhale as you go down, exhale as you push through, right? Always working with Rosemary has been the primary focus was in the beginning was stability. Wow, lovely Rosemary. Now she's showing off a bit. Shoulders down. Well done. She's been my most challenging client and the most rewarding. When she first came to me, she did the best she could, and she was very limited by her physicality. She was not an athletic child. She has a psoriatic arthritis, which you can never underestimate the pain that she lives with in her joints. And because of that pain, she developed a lot of muscles, but very, very tight muscles that weren't working efficiently. She had very little body awareness, and she sometimes walked with a cane. So to get her to access her real internal strength, where there's a lot, was challenging. And she did not want to do that. That neuromuscular reconditioning is very difficult. It was hard all the time. Even doing roll-ups, your stomach got in the way. It was much harder to compensate for carrying all that weight. And there's one other element, which you did touch on before, is that she's less fearful of falling and hurting herself. That contributes a lot to her stability now. So let's put the hands on top of your knees and do a little apanasana. Inhale, push the legs away. Exhale, draw the legs towards you. Shoulders down, and make sure your hips are released. We never really discussed her weight. And once she found stability in her body to affect change, then I think she realized there are other things with her body that she could master or conquer or change. And that was the progression. First she became strong and stable, and then she was able to address the weight issue. But the weight loss has definitely made her more willing to try different exercises. Good, but keep the lift. And shove your hip forward a little bit more. Well done. And release. Since starting the weight loss program at St. Luke's Hospital back in 2006, Rosemary has lost about 80 pounds and kept it off. Program director Rich Weil says that's not unusual. 
Um, Rosemary's progress is typical of people who stay in the program after year one. We talk frequently about uh, um, patients' commitment and determination. That's something that Rosemary has, and the people who lose weight like Rosemary has exhibit the same qualities. Rosemary's sister Teresa says for the first time in her life, Rosemary has found a balance between food and exercise and lives a much more healthful life. I personally feel there could not have been a finer place. St. Luke has been literally a lifesaver for her. Today, Rosemary Byrne is a happier, more active person. She continues to go to weekly meetings in what's known as the Rainbow Program, a series of three-month-long extensions for those who need support in their journey, similar to AA meetings. I need the constant support of similarly-minded people who are at the same stage or have been on the journey that I'm on. I vowed that I was going to deal with the habit and changing the habit and changing the food patterns. For Rosemary, the journey is still not over. Food is still an addiction. Exercise, still painful. And those sweets keep calling out her name. But she has a realistic outlook now and relies on those baby steps each day. For Cityscape, I'm Skylar Srivastava. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and to WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. According to the New York City Health Department, obesity can be caused by a number of social, cultural, behavioral, physiological, and metabolic factors. The physical symptoms of obesity are many, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, back pain, and the list goes on. We welcome now to Cityscape the Deputy Director of the Health Department's Physical Activity and Nutrition Program, Sabrina Berenberg. Good morning. Good morning. Before we go any further, Sabrina, I think it's important to understand the difference between being overweight and being obese. So what are the differences? Well, the difference is obese is a a higher BMI. So generally when we calculate statistics, we calculate them for people who are overweight and obese because those are both dangerous conditions to be in. But basically being obese is being at the highest level of the BMI chart. Now you have to take me a step back and explain to me what BMI BMI is. is, yes. So BMI stands for Body Mass Index. And basically it's a way that we can calculate um, whether people are at a healthy weight or not. So it incorporates the, your, your height and weight, and it's a way to, to really calculate, have a standardized measure for calculating whether people are at a healthy weight. So there is a BMI chart, and you can actually chart yourself on that to see whether or not you fall into an underweight category, healthy weight, overweight, or obese. Could we do that with me right now? Would you be able to do that with me? It's a little complicated formula, so I have to do it. I have a program. I can do it online. Um, but I recommend if anybody's interested in doing that to just type in, you know, calculate BMI, and there's a calculator online where you can calculate your own personal BMI. What are the negative health effects of being overweight or obese? We know that obese and overweight people have a shorter lifespan. We also know that they may be more likely to have issues with heart disease, diabetes, stroke, cancer. What strain do you think this is all putting on our health care system? People who are overweight or obese are much more likely to uh, have hospital complications, and because of that, we're all paying more into our health care. Um, in fact, we know that obesity-related illnesses cost New York State residents nearly $8 billion in medical costs each year, which we've calculated adds an average of $770 to every household tax bill. So it's having a big effect. Now, how's this for an eye-opening statistic? In New York City, 58% of New York adults are overweight or obese. Is it wrong for me to be surprised by that figure? 
No, you know, I think um, we've all seen the changes, um, you know, just walking around the city. You notice that the majority of people do seem overweight or obese, and it's not just in New York City. It's happening across the state, across the country, and actually across the world. So obesity is epidemic worldwide. Um, in New York City, we're about average in terms of over overweight and obese, um, but in certain areas of the city, it's actually even higher. In some areas of the city, up to 71% of adults are overweight or obese. Why is that the case? You know, some people live in areas which we would call obesogenic, which means that it's much more difficult to find healthy foods. It's much more difficult to choose healthier options. So, you know, being, being at a healthy weight is all about calories in and calories out. It's about eating healthy and engaging in physical activity. So we know that there are certain areas of the city where it's much more difficult to engage in physical activity, and it's much more difficult to find and purchase healthy food. Sabrina, we went out and we talked to New Yorkers about their eating habits, specifically in two New York City neighborhoods, the Fordham section of the Bronx and the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Here's what someone from the Bronx had to say. My name is Anna Martinez. I live around this area, Fordham Road. I eat out often. A lot of um, meat, because that's basically what we are, rice, beans, you know, not really a lot of vegetables or things like that. From outside, well, a lot of, um, like, McDonald's, Burger King, or White Castle, Taco Bell, things like that. If I'm overweighted, I know I'm not... I mean, I don't feel comfortable with my way at all. I just like I just basically need someone like to help me, like to motivate me and things like that. But no, I don't have anyone right now. What do you think about that comment? Well, I think that you know her sentiments are very common. You know, she's talking about how she needs more motivation. How, you know, you can hear in her voice that you know everywhere she looks, there's fast food, there's unhealthy items. She eats out a lot. You know, those are all very common throughout New York City and throughout the country. People are eating it out, eating out a lot more than they used to. People are not cooking at home, and they're eating out in fast food establishments, which tend not to have healthy options like fruits and vegetables and whole grains. She obviously knows she's overweight. She wants to lose weight. You know, at the health department, we would really argue that we need to make changes in the environment to help motivate and encourage her. It's not an issue of education in this case. She knows she needs to lose weight. She even said, you know, I don't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables or I don't find, you know, vegetables in these types of locations. She knows that she should be eating more healthy foods, but it's difficult for her for a variety of reasons. So at the health department, we're really trying to work on that through a variety of interventions, you know, about our calorie labeling regulation. That will help her make healthier choices if she does choose to eat out in a fast food restaurant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the city is now requiring chain restaurants to post calorie information on their menus. Do you get a sense that people are paying attention to them, that this information is getting them to change their eating habits? I do. Just in conversations with people that I work with on the street, even just myself standing in line, I hear people say, I, you know, I've, I've seen people actually walk out of, you know, different establishments because they can't find anything that they want to eat on the menu that's, that's healthy. Um, we've also noticed, and this is, I think, most important, is that a lot of these establishments are actually changing their menu options. They have a healthier menu section. They actually are advertising their healthier foods more often because, you know, they're kind of shamed into the number of calories that are in certain items. They don't want to promote those items because they actually have to put the calories there front and center. So seeing those kind of changes is really important because, if you go into a fast food restaurant and all they have are high caloric items and you're bombarded with that information, it's not as helpful as if you actually see that they have a, a healthier option um, and you're able to make that choice. I know right across the street here from Fordham University where we're based, there's a fruit and vegetable stand. That is part of your effort as well. 
Great. Well, hopefully that may be a green cart. So that is also one of the interventions that we're working on to make it easier for people to eat healthier. So we have a variety of interventions like that where we're addressing all areas of food retail in the city. We're working with corner stores, we're working with mobile food vendors, we're working with supermarkets, and we're working with farmers markets to make sure that access to fruits and vegetables is the same in all areas of the city. So that cart you saw across the street may be an NYC green cart, which is a fruit and vegetable cart. That kind of cart is only allowed to sell fresh, whole fruits and vegetables and only in those certain areas of the city that have the least consumption of fruits and vegetables. And you'll be able to tell if it's a green cart if it has a big green umbrella that says NYC green cart on it. Has it been a challenge to get grocery stores to open up in low-income neighborhoods of New York City? It is a challenge, um, but in order to address that, we started a program called the FRESH Initiative, which actually provides taxing and zoning incentives to supermarkets if they agree to locate in certain areas that need them most. So we're really trying to make it as easy as possible for supermarkets to set up in these areas because we know supermarkets are the easiest place to buy healthy food. They're, they're large, they have large refrigerated sections, and they are often able to sell things at a really good price. Talking about supermarkets, I want to play another comment here, this one from a gentleman on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. My name is Richard Peck, and I live on the Upper East Side in the East 70s. I shop in Harlem at Pathmark because I disapprove of the, of the prices in my neighborhood. On my list are all the things my trainer tells me I can have to maintain my weight. I've lost 50 pounds, a pound a week for a year, and I hope to maintain that. It's hard at my age, the mid-70s. And so I am on a low-carb, fresh fruit and vegetable diet, and uh, I've never felt better in my life. I think I am probably at my ideal weight. I'm six feet, two inches tall, and I weigh 167 pounds. I walk two miles a day, and I have my stair-stepper at home, and I'm trying to eliminate all carbs, which is hard because I love bread. My day-to-day diet is a big breakfast, a medium lunch, and a very light dinner. Now, first of all, this guy has grocery stores in his neighborhood. I know the Upper East Side has quite a few, but he shops in Harlem for cheaper prices. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. It's a very interesting story. Um, Prices definitely vary throughout the city at supermarkets, at farmer's markets, at corner stores. Um, And he has the the time and the resources to be able to travel outside of his neighborhood to get a better price, um, which is great. And it sounds like he's doing an excellent job losing weight and incorporating physical activity into his day. Yeah, I was going to say, this guy is doing everything right, it seems. (laughs) Yes, definitely. And it, it just goes to show that you can make some small changes in your diet and it can have a big effect. And that's why, actually, right now we're really working... Uh, to encourage New Yorkers to decrease their sugar-sweetened beverage consumption because that's one easy way. Cutting down on sugary drinks is one easy way to lose weight, Um, and we know that there's a, a free and healthy alternative, tap water. What is the real truth behind these sugary drinks? Well, right now, sugar-sweetened beverages are the single largest driver of the obesity epidemic, single largest driver, meaning that sugar-sweetened beverages are what are one of the main causes of what's contributing to obesity currently. So, you know, that's for many reasons. Sugary drinks are inexpensive. Also, you know, you go to your local corner store, there are hundreds of different types of sugar drinks to to choose from. And people often don't know that flavored iced teas, flavored waters, flavored crew cocktails have as much sugar as a a soda. Um, So it's really a part of of manufacturing and marketing from the industry that's really convinced us that sugary drinks are, you know, the best way to go um, and that they're, you know, a 
good alternative to water. Talking about soda, many people don't know how much sugar is in a 20-ounce container of soda. How much sugar is in one? One single 20-ounce soda has almost 16 teaspoons of sugar. 16 teaspoons. So, uh, you know, that's a really shocking number. And actually what we try and do is show people and actually give people a visual of this by taking a plastic baggie and actually spooning in 16 teaspoons of sugar. And once you actually see what that looks like and that you're consuming that, and many people consume one to two to five sugar-sweetened drinks a day, nobody would add that much sugar to their coffee. No one would add that much sugar to a a bowl of cereal or to a bowl of fruit. Um, But people have no problem drinking it because they, they don't when you drink, you actually feel like uh, you're not consuming calories because you don't get full from drinking beverages. So it's really a misconception out there that we're trying to address. And we know that a child's risk of becoming obese increases by 60% for every additional sugary drink that they consume a day. Well, here's another very unfortunate statistic in New York City. Four in 10 elementary school children overweight or obese. Yes, yes, and one in five in kindergarten. So we know that obesity starts early. And that's why we need to address it as early as possible. Um, And we know that kids are are drinking a lot of sugary drinks. And if we can switch them over to uh, water, low-fat milk, that can make a big difference. If a child in kindergarten is overweight or obese, I would think then that might lead to the parents, that there needs to be more education in the household? Definitely. Uh, there's always a need for more education, but we would also say it, you know, it's still also an issue of the environment. So, for example, um, think about how a kid spends their day. They may go to daycare, they may go to school, so it's really important what kind of foods are actually served at school, what types of foods are available in the vending machine, and that's something we're, we're working really hard on is to actually work to change school food. And actually, NYC public school food is some of the best in the country. Um, you know, getting rid of vending machines in schools so that kids can't purchase unhealthy sugary drinks. Um, and then also thinking over the course of the day, more and more often kids don't have access to recess or physical activity time during the day. We're working to train teachers so that they can incorporate physical activity into the classroom setting in case they don't have enough time to have a gym class. But, you know, it's really over the course of the whole day, the kids are exposed to a variety of different issues. And then also when they come home, their parents may be working two jobs. They may live in a single-parent household where there isn't time to cook and it's easier to order a pizza. And, you know, that can all really contribute to risk for obesity. Are there genetic factors at play? There can be, um, but... Really, at this point, the obesity epidemic has reached such large proportions that we can really connect it more directly to the environment. Help me to understand this survey that came out a few months ago. It found that the most severe hunger-related problems in the nation are in the South Bronx, and this is an area that also has very high rates of obesity. How is that possible? It's very interesting. Um, It's actually... It's a concept called the nutrition transition, and it's actually happening in developing countries around the world uh, where people are being malnourished, and it used to be because they weren't consuming enough calories, Um, but now it's because they're consuming too many calories in the form of food that doesn't actually satiate their their hunger um, or their nutrient needs. So we have an issue in the South Bronx where, um, you know, people are over-consuming calories, but they're consuming foods with little to no nutrients, so they're still classified as being you know, hungry. I want to bring in another comment that we got from someone in the Bronx, actually someone who is taking advantage of at least one of the programs that you have in place to help people eat healthier. My name is Michael Phillips. I live in the uh, Bronx here, Williams Bridge. I work over here in Fordham, and I shop um, periodically here in Fordham. 
I go to um, Compare, which has good prices for this area. I try to pick up nutritional stuff. I like only certain things. I pick up my fruits over here from the, um, the vendors here who have fresh fruits. They're great. I would recommend their fruits to anybody. Their grapes, their peaches, their avocados, their mangoes, wonderful. I love ice cream. We should have more grocery stores that have fresh stuff like Pathmark, Shop and Stop. We don't have one in our area. They have one in Bay Plaza, but that's too far from us. Organic um, fruits and vegetables and things like that are very expensive in this area. I wish they were more affordable. So he's using your street carts there. He's using the green carts. (laughs) That's great to hear. And his uh, speech there is really a testament to the fact that the demand is there. There really is a myth out there that certain areas of the city, people just aren't interested in eating healthy. They're just not interested in eating more fruits and vegetables. We know that is not the case. That is a complete myth. The demand is there. He wants more fruits and vegetables. He wants more access in his neighborhood. He doesn't want to have to travel far to get the healthy, nutritious foods. He knows that he's supposed to be eating healthier foods, and he wants to. And we just have to do our part to make sure that they're available there for him and that they're affordable. Is it, though, sometimes a challenge to get people to change their behavior? It definitely is. Behavior change is one of the most difficult things um, in the area of public health. But we know that in order for someone to change their behavior, they have to have the opportunity to do so. Sabrina Berenberg, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Sabrina Berenberg is the deputy director of the New York City Health Department's Physical Activity and Nutrition Program. The health department advises making lifestyle changes to improve nutrition and increase physical activity as the best way to prevent chronic health problems. For more information, go to nyc.gov health. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boraki. My thanks to senior producer Skylar Srivastava and producer Maureen Chin. Have a great weekend.